Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for the things that we've already sung this morning about who you are and who we are because of you and in you. I thank you for the chance to sing together, to raise our voices, to be pulled into prayers that we've needed and to sing them over others. We've already got to be a bit of your church here today. Thanks for life in the room uh, and the ways that our hearts are hungry for you because you are hungry for us. You're our God who's seeking us today. And we ask that you would open us up to say yes to you today. All that you have for us, all that you want for us. We thank you for our kids. Thank you for our middle school youth who've just run out to be with Jerry and Ben today. Would you use everything this morning to glorify yourself? May your kingdom come, may your will be done. Give us ears to hear your voice and speak to us through your word. Amen. Well, this morning I have the privilege of introducing a new series that we are entering into. Um, But more than that, I want to invite us into an intentional season at the feet of Jesus. That's the title of our new series, At the Feet of Jesus. But it's more than a title. It is, it names something vital, something central to life with God, to life with, in, by, and for Jesus. And I know that what I just said there, life in, with, by, and for Jesus, can sound like something that Scott would say in a sermon. But over the years, I've come to recognize the profound significance and difference between the first and the last prepositions in that phrase, with Jesus and for Jesus. It's going to ask you, as you think about your own life as a Christian, your own repeated prayers for your life, which would you say most honestly describes your Christian life? Which is your aim? Not your perfect aim, but your repeated aim. And in case you're wondering or concerned, I'm not about to put a wedge between these two. A great wedge between these two emphases in the Christian life. I am convinced this is what we're called to, a life with and in and by and for God. But as I look back on the formative early years of my faith, growing up in the church here, Uh, in Calgary, in White Rock, part of this church, a part of Alliance churches in my teens. As I think back on growing up in youth group and learning about Jesus and the Christian life, reading the Bible on my own in fits and spurts, I was never good at it as a teen, always was jealous of my friend Jeff, who could like fill in every devotional between now and next week, and I'd come with an empty page and my notes from last time we met, and that was it. Um, Being a youth, becoming a youth leader, uh, working at summer camps, venturing off to Cape and Ray Bible School after high school, um, and then on to university. If you asked which of these most described my deepest prayer, my abiding vision of God's call and expectation of me, I think I would have said for 
Jesus. I was hungry to live for Jesus wherever I was, to represent Jesus well to friends, to classmates, even my teachers, to honor Jesus, to be a witness for Jesus. And I'm thankful for this. There's a lot of other things I could have been caught up with, and I was at times. Uh, Do not imagine me as the perfect teenage kid. I got a lot of stupid things and a lot of things I had to repent for. But by the time I graduated high school, I knew that I longed to know Jesus and spend my life helping other people know Jesus. That said, by the time I was in my final year of university, I know I've shared some of this before, but it's such a fundamental story in my walk with Jesus, I, I need to tell it again. By the time I found myself in my last year of university, on my way to graduating with a BA in Biblical Studies, about to apply for grad studies at Regent College on a path towards pastoral ministry, freshly married, seemingly my path was set, I found myself in a season of profound confusion in my faith of how it all fit together and what it meant for me in a daily living sort of way. It wasn't a crisis of faith. I knew that Jesus was who he said he was and he was at work in my life by grace, through faith. But in the midst of that, I experienced a profound crisis of coherence. How it all was supposed to fit together. I had... I was about to graduate with a BA in Biblical Studies. I'd spent a year at Cape and Ray. I had led Bible studies. I studied God's Word a fair amount. And I knew lots of things. I probably could find the verse for that question that you had. But how it fit together into a way of life felt lost to me. What did God want of me and for me? What did it mean to truly live for Jesus? And if I'm honest, the experience really shook me. Uh, It scared me at some levels. I felt really lost. I felt like I knew the Bible in lots of ways. I knew what it said about lots of things that related to me. I've been immersing myself in it personally, prayerfully, academically, exegetically for a number of years. I'd already started preaching at my church. And yet in the midst of it all, I felt like I was staring at a massive puzzle scattered across the table and a lot of the pieces were there, but I couldn't find the box, which meant I couldn't see the picture that it was supposed to become on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday for me. Felt like a world of expectations of all these things I should be doing. Anyone feel like that ever? I couldn't make sense of how it was all supposed to come together as a way of life. I wanted to live for Jesus, but I felt lost. At some point, I felt this need to almost kind of start over. Um, to start again from the beginning, not to throw aside everything I'd learned or try to forget it all, because you can't. Uh, But also, I didn't think I needed to. Jesus had walked with me. Jesus had met me. I had experienced him in lots of ways. 
But in the midst of it, with all that, I felt this need to come back to the beginning and literally flip back to the opening pages, to Genesis 1, and then to the middle and the bit to the right, to Matthew 1, the beginning of the New Testament, and just bow before God to come and sit before God at his feet day after day. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not a monk. I was married. I had academics. I had classes I had to go to. I had things I was involved. So it wasn't like life stopped. So this is in the midst of everything else. I felt this need to come again to God's word, to sit at God's feet day after day in Genesis and the Gospel of Matthew with a simple twofold prayer. God, what do you want me to know of yourself? What do you want me to know of yourself? And God, what are you asking of me? I've been trying to live for you. I feel so confused. I feel a million expectations, million shoulds. What do you want for me? And over the next season, God met me in his word in so many ways, spoke to me. But the pivotal moment in it, the renewing, reorienting revelation came as I found myself in Genesis 12 and Matthew 4.19 at roughly the same time. Genesis 12 being the call of Abraham. Matthew 4.19 being the call of the first disciples, the first followers of Jesus. Dramatically different moments in history, dramatically different moments in the world, different cultures, different people, and yet in both defining moments, because they are, they're both moments that would come to shape the rest of the respective stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The core invitation in both of those moments wasn't for Abraham and Peter and Andrew to go and do something great for God, to go be great God people or influences, to go and live for God, but to come and to walk with, to follow God that God might do in and through them what only God could do. And this became a reorienting, recentering invitation in my life. Jesus' words in Matthew 4.19 spoke to me so deeply, reorienting my vision of the Christian life. Jesus says, come, follow me. That's it. That's the only ask in it. Come, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. I don't know about your story, but for me, this verse was so pointed because in so many ways, as I reflected back on my Christian life to that point, I'd always felt that the primary call, my central task, that the main thing in the Christian life was for me to be a fisher of men and a good one, a witness, a good witness, which I often felt I wasn't. But here in this verse, I realized I had flipped the emphasis. I set my sights on doing the one thing that Jesus said he would do, and I'd ignored the one thing that he was asking of me. He said, come, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women. Come be with me. You don't know how to do this. Come be with me. Come walk with me. Come learn from me. Some of you have 
heard me say before, we did a whole series on what it means to be a disciple a number of years back. January 2017. But to be a disciple is to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to live in Jesus. Some of us just race to the last thinking, all right, that's the call. Go live in, go do, go live for. Jesus says, come be with me that you might learn from me to live in me. And I will make you a vessel of my life for others. Which brings us back to the, the, and clarifies the relationship between for and with. Simply put, with precedes for. Life with Jesus is what bears the fruit of a life for Jesus. And not simply as the starting point, year one, of the Christian life, but as the essential foundation for all the rest forever, as the renewing center of the Christian life through all of our journey, we will never outgrow our need to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet, to be with him, to learn from him, to live in him. But along with this being our perennial discipleship need, I feel like this feels like something that we, the church in North America, maybe everywhere, need uniquely in these days. With all the burning issues in our day, with all the pressing questions that call out for response, with all the loud voices that claim to speak for God and the priorities of Jesus, whether on the left or on the right or in the muddy middle, that social media post that you see after every scroll that throws another thought to say, this is what God really cares about, or this, obviously God doesn't care about this, right? There's so many loud voices that claim to speak for God and the priorities of Jesus. And you're thinking, I just wanted to know what happened to my childhood friend. And I've got all this stuff coming at me. At least that's what my Facebook feed looks like. There's so many urgent voices, urgent burning needs, pressing questions. And with all of this, there is an urgent need for Christians, those who claim to follow Jesus, those who want to follow Jesus, not to withdraw from public discourse, but to do so from a place of truly sitting and living at the feet of Jesus. Seeking and allowing Jesus in his word to define his, our vision and knowledge of him that we might see him as he is, not just as someone else tells us, not just as our hearts are prone to think because of our experience. Right? There's a lot of myths today out there about Jesus. There's a lot of lies. There's a lot of half-truths about Jesus alive in our day, as there has been in every era, every time in history. And it should be no surprise, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But it's not just a battle being waged in the minds and hearts of unbelievers. It's a battle being waged in all of our hearts. Why? Because the, Satan is a liar. The big, and his biggest lies, his greatest lying passion is to lie to us about Jesus, who is the image of God. 
doing all he can to blind or at least obscure our hearts and minds from seeing Jesus as he is, lest we would trust him and follow him and worship him and love him. This Don Everts, a campus pastor and author who's helped me a lot over the years, wisely writes, in every age the church's picture of Jesus has come under attack. Which is why we need to come again and again to sit at the feet of Jesus himself and allow Jesus to continually renew our vision of himself and the faith to which he calls us. I have a book on my shelf it's called A Jesus Brand Spirituality. Subtitle is Jesus Wants His Religion Back. Um, I haven't read the whole book, so I'm not going to promote it as the vouch. Some of it I appreciate. But that subtitle is, is the heart. Jesus wants his religion back. We need to continually come. It is urgent in our day that those who claim to follow Jesus live at the feet of Jesus learning from him who he is. And, but not just to see him as he is, but to encounter and experience Jesus for ourselves. That's the other invitation of living at the feet of Jesus. It's another reason why we're calling this study at the feet of Jesus, because throughout the Gospels, this phrase, at the feet of Jesus, isn't just, doesn't just refer to the posture and practice of a disciple, someone who sits at the feet of Jesus, who's seeking to learn from Jesus. But it's also what the broken do, right? It's what, what men and women do when they discover that their heart is sinful and betrays them and God. It's what people do who discover that they know Jesus. They come and they fall at the feet of Jesus. Luke 8, 41, then a man named Jairus a synagogue leader came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And so he came and he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. But it's not just Jairus and his daughter who need to experience Jesus, his life-giving, life-restoring grace. We all do, every one of us, no matter how much our life looks put together or not, we all need not just to know Jesus as he is, but to experience him, to experience his grace, his life, his mercy, his healing, his forgiveness, which is why we're going to spend this season with Jesus, specifically in Luke 3 to 8. Now, in the three, because honestly, we've already been in Luke a bit in the last season. Our Advent journey took us to about Luke 3, verse 20. So we're actually, in two weeks, just going to pick up Luke 3, verse 21. But through eight, because Luke is really long, it's the longest, um, it's, the, it's an eighth of the New Testament. Luke and Acts, which are a two-part writing by one person, it's the most it's the largest portion of writing by anyone in the New Testament. It's huge. Usually pastors, churches don't preach through Luke because it takes 42 years. So we're taking a window, but specifically we're taking this window to eight because this is the season in the journey of the disciples that precedes their participation in Jesus' ministry. It's easy to think that Jesus' first disciples are just 
gutsy, fruitful fishers of men and women right from day one, but that is not the case. Whether you're reading Matthew's Gospels or Luke's Gospel, I haven't looked at Mark specifically on this issue, but in both of Matthew and Luke, there is a season where the disciples are just at the feet of Jesus. They are not yet commanded to do anything except to come and be. Why? Because they need to learn from Jesus. They need to see who he is. They need to experience his gospel out of which they can share it with others. They need a time to simply be with Jesus and it's the same for us because as I said earlier, with proceeds for. Life with Jesus is what bears the fruit of a life for Jesus, which is ultimately what Jesus is after. That our lives in this world, in this moment, in this culture, in this time would bear Jesus' influence, Jesus' image. That our priorities would reflect Jesus' priorities. That our, our life would reflect Jesus' life. That our way of engagement with the world would reflect Jesus' way of engagement with the world. That our vision of truth would be aligned with the truth of Jesus. Because we've learned it from him. Because we've been with him. I love that story in the book of Acts when a number of the apostles are on trial and it is said at the, after they are assessed that though they are unschooled fishermen, they have been with Jesus. May that be said of us again and again throughout our lives that we are women and men who have been with Jesus. Our lives prove to the world that we have been with Jesus personally, and together. That's what we're doing. And so for the next season, and I'm being a bit vague about how long because I really don't want to rush. And I say that even personally. I just want to go slow and listen to what Jesus wants to say to us and receive what Jesus wants to give to us, including what he wants to give to me. Uh, you might realize as I reflect back on the story or I tell the story of me turning back to Genesis 1, and the Gospels, this is what we've done this year, right? We spent the fall in Genesis 1 through 11, and now we're diving into the Gospels. And part of me, the fall was super intense. Teaching Genesis 1 to 11 was super intense. And I'm craving a season of just sitting at the feet of Jesus and letting him be the teacher for me and sharing from that and inviting you into that as well. So two weeks from now, we're going to dive into this. Um, next Sunday, we're having John Williams with us and uh, celebrating our 50th. So for the re remaining time that I have, I want to invite us to open to Luke 1, 1 to 4. Prefacing where we're going in a few weeks, I want to invite us to open up just the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. Um, I'll tell you a page number, but you don't have my Bible, so... If you don't own a Bible, there are a number on the bookshelf out in the hallway, and you're welcome to take one now or after the service. Um, Luke 1, 1 to 4. I just think it's important, even though we're going to be in Luke 3 to 8, I think it's important that we start uh, with just these opening words from Luke. I'll read it for us. I'm reading from the NIV, though most translations are pretty much the same, just slightly word order changes. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those 
who were the who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Wow, just kidding. That is not a text that you go, whoa, I'm stirred. It's, it's, a, it's not a story. It's not, Mark just takes us right into action. That is not how Luke begins. Of all the Gospels, Luke frames his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus very explicitly, names the aim of his writing, of his gospel. It's the last line there. It says, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's what Luke is after. He's writing to a a young Gentile Christian named Theophilus, Theophilus likely was the benefactor helping provide for Luke to be able to set aside this time and write this this work. Luke would know that it would go beyond Theophilus, but he's uh, writing in somewhat to him. He says that. Theophilus must have had some questions, some confusion about what he knew about Jesus. We're told there that he's heard things, he's been taught things, but he needs to know with confidence. And that's what Luke's after, that Theophilus would know the truth of Jesus with confidence. And Luke's aim is even more emphatic in the original language. He places the word certainty or sure at the very end of the sentence. A more literal translation would be, I have written all this, the whole of my gospel, Theophilus, so that you may be sure that you would not be muddled in your vision of Jesus, muddled by rumors and misquotes and social media posts and misrepresentations and misdirections, or that you would feel insecure about what you know, uncertain if the Jesus that you claim to know is the real Jesus. Luke wrote his gospel, his account of the gospel, so that Theophilus and us with him would know the truth of Jesus with confidence that we would encounter the real Jesus in Luke's gospel, then the reading of Luke's gospel, we would feel that we are bowing at the feet of Jesus, the real Jesus. Confident because of what Luke explains in the preceding verses. First of all, Luke's sources, he claims, are those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, which is interesting because it tells us by implication that Luke himself was not an eyewitness. I think I often forget this. Luke, of all the gospel writers, was not at the table with Jesus. He was not one of the three. He was, of, as opposed to the other three gospel writers, Luke was not an apostle one of those first early followers of Jesus. Like us, Luke came to faith through the testimony of others. I love knowing this. Which isn't to say that Luke was just a New Testament writer. He actually shows up in the story himself in an indirect, less directive way, I'll say. Um, Yes, he wrote both Luke and Acts, the two-part narrative, But Luke himself shows up in this story as a travel companion for the Apostle Paul. In Acts 16, Luke's writing about the work of the Spirit through the early Christians after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. In Acts 16, 
an attentive reader will notice that there's a shift in the text from Luke describing events in the third person, as in, I heard about this, so let me tell you, Luke 16, verse 8, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. And then two verses later, writing in the, you hear the author of Luke writing in the first person, verse 10, after Paul had seen a vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. And from then on, the book of Acts, that portion is written in we, personal. But with this, Paul himself, at a number of turns in his letters, mentions his gratitude for Luke, Dr. Luke, Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, as a trusted companion. And in 2 Timothy, it's distinct, actually, because Paul is saying, you need to know, he's writing to Timothy, He's asking them to send some people to him because everyone has left him. Everyone has deserted him except Luke, he says. So Luke is a trusted companion to Paul. But despite being a latecomer to the story of Jesus, or maybe because of it, Luke, a doctor by training, gave himself to, as he says, investigating from the beginning everything carefully. I know I'm reading it in the wrong order, but I'll explain that in a minute. And maybe this is why Luke's gospel is so expansive, why it's so long. But more than just being long, there is so much in Luke's gospel that we find nowhere else. 30% of, this, of his gospel is unique to his gospel. And it's stunning to realize, if not for the gospel of Luke and his extensive following of the Jesus story and all of its threads, we would not have the bulk of Mary's story. All she had experienced, including her own inner thoughts. How does someone know that unless they went and interviewed them? And only Luke gives that to us. We would not have the stories of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the birth of John the Baptist, Jesus' childhood experience in the Jerusalem temple. Imagine Christmas. Imagine a Christmas Eve service. Imagine Christmas morning with the kids or the grandkids or whoever without all that Luke gives us. It'd be totally different. We'd have few stories to share. But it's not just the Christmas narratives. If not for Luke, we would not have 16 of the parables, including the Good Samaritan. That's a story that has shaped our world. People know it everywhere who don't even know Jesus. Or the prodigal sons. We would not have that story if not for Luke's gospel. It shows up in no other gospel. And with that, we wouldn't have the account of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem or sweating blood in Gethsemane. We would not have the story of the disciples on the Emmaus Road or Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As R.C. Sproul, trusted Bible teacher, reflects on this, he says, maybe because of his lack of personal engagement with Jesus, Luke is the surprising gatherer of Jesus' life and impact, drawing details that others didn't include, even interviewing Mary. I love that thought. I know it can sound unlikely, but that's what Luke claims and what his expansive gospel bears witness to so coherently. All because of what Luke has given himself to, over the years, which he says, investigating from the beginning, everything carefully. And I know the words on the screen are put in a different order, but what I've just quoted is the order in the Greek. I think it'll show up there now. Investigating from the beginning, everything carefully. And there's this relentless precision 
about what Paul says here and stacking all of this together. It makes me think of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 when he's praying for the Christians in Ephesus and he prays that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's ridiculous. It's so intense. He could have just said, may you be filled with God. But he says, may you be filled with a measure of all the fullness of God. It just means filled with God. But he just wants to say everything. And that's what Luke does here. He claims to have investigated from the beginning everything carefully. And there's this precision about it that we might only expect and hope for from a doctor. Thank God for doctors who pay attention to details, seek to for us. And that's what Luke does. So let me just say something brief about each of these words because Luke wants Theophilus and us to be confident as we come and sit at the feet of Jesus in the gospel of Luke that we would know with confidence that we are meeting the real Jesus. He says that he has investigated the story of Jesus. The Greek word there, I won't say it because it's long and complicated, but the Greek word literally means to follow closely or even to trace. That's what Luke has worked hard, diligently to do, to adhere as closely to the lines of Jesus' life in all that he has learned and now passed on to us. Second, he has investigated from the beginning. That doesn't mean from Luke's beginning, from his childhood, but he means all the way back in the story of Jesus, which is why Luke's gospel doesn't begin with Jesus beginning into his ministry at age 30. It starts with his birth, but before that, it starts with the birth announcement to Zachariah and Elizabeth of John, and then to Mary, and then the birth of John and Jesus goes all the way back, gives us even a glimpse of his growing up years. He has investigated from the beginning everything. We've already noted that Luke gives us far more than any other gospel writer. But with this, he also gives us a unique perspective as the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. Right? In its beginning, at its inception, this was a Jewish movement. But then in time, because of God's purposes, because of Jesus and how he announced the gospel, the gospel broke through cross cultures into the Gentile world and then out across the whole world. And Luke is one of those people, a Gentile, for whom the gospel has come and engrafted him in. And so Luke writes his gospel with a unique perspective as someone who would have been viewed as an outsider who's now in Jesus and Jesus' people. And so Luke is uniquely alert to that and will help us be uniquely alert to how the gospel is for all. For all, and especially in Luke's gospel, for all who were on the outside in Jesus' day. He says the most about women, children, the poor and the rich, the powerless and the powerful, those at the bottom rung, those in the seats of authority, all. He's investigated from the beginning everything carefully. Uh, Greek word for carefully just means carefully. Uh, I could push it further to say in the, 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 the dictionaries, the Greek dictionaries would say it means with exactness, with attention to all the details. That's what Luke is after in his work and what he's trying to bring to us. Which brings me back finally to the first two verses, that second verse actually, but I'll read verse one and two again. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Much has been written and said about Luke's reference to eyewitnesses. I have a 500 plus page book on my office shelf by a premier New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham, titled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, tracing how much confidence we can have of this practice in the ancient world of passing on stories orally, being guarded by the community so that they are true. They are what happened. There is so much evidence for this. We have no reason to distrust Luke's assertion that he learned the stories of Jesus from those who were there and passed it on to us. All the evidence bears this out. It's not one of those stupid games of telephone that people claim to all the time. But what's caught my attention this time around is this second seemingly quieter description of those who passed on the story of Jesus to Luke, who's now passed it on to us. He says, those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. The Greek word translated as servants is a word huperitai. It's two words together, under and rower, or oarsman, huperitai, an under rower, an under oarsman. Oarsman meaning someone, or both together, someone who labors in service of a vessel, not someone who commands it, who stands over it, who is in charge of it, but someone who labors in service of a vessel, which in this instance is the word, the word of God. And I can't help but think that this is what Luke became for Paul over the years, laboring under, serving Paul, and what Luke became for Theophilus and for us in his writing of this gospel. He has been a servant, a huperatai, an under oarsman, offering to us, not lording over, but offering to us what has been passed on to us. Not standing over the word or words, changing them, fixing them, making them better in his mind, shaping it according to his own interests, but coming to us as one who stands under serves under, who labors in service of the word, that we might have confidence that what we are receiving in, from him is what he received from others who received it from Jesus with confidence. But with that, I think there's a word to us. As we enter into this study, as we seek to come and sit at the feet of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, to spend a season with Jesus in Luke 3 to 8, this is the invitation for us that we would not just listen, though we must, not just come and listen, but that we would seek to stand under God's revelation, not stand over it, but stand under to receive what Jesus says about himself, what Jesus says about us, what Jesus says about the world. We sang a song, Mark, well chosen, that just named that, that of I come into agreement with who you say you are and who you say I am. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Not to stand up and say, oh, he didn't know. Oh, Jesus knows. So let's listen. And with that, that we would do the same for others. Let's pray.
living God, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, we thank you together that you're a God that speaks, that we are a community today who is invited to know you, have been invited to know you. We're here today because you have sought to make yourself known to us through your word, by your grace, by your spirit, down through the centuries. You led Luke to yourself and then you led him to have a hungry servant heart to, to investigate from the beginning everything carefully that he might faithfully act as a servant to bring to us your revelation. And so we ask as we enter into this season that you would open our hearts and make us hungry to bow before you, to know you as you are, and to experience you as you desire according to your purposes. As we kind of look over the shoulder of the disciples, as we listen in on your encounters with others, Lord, in your mercy and grace, would you allow us to find you meeting us, speaking to us, seeing us in the crowd, restoring us, lifting us up, giving us life in you, turning our hearts and lives toward you, God. So grant us humility and hunger to come running. And make us this for one another too. Again and again, Jesus, as you have in the past, would you make us a church that invites and helps one another come to the feet of Jesus with hope for your grace, God. Amen.